It's fun to see all your faces. I wish you could have the opportunity to be up here and to see your beautiful faces. So uh, we have another anti-Dharma ad to start this talk. This one came from online, a commercial for air freshener. So there's a picture of this car, and it's like out west. There's all the mountains in the distance and the wide-open view. And um, and then there's a, somebody turns on the car, and the voiceover says, this is what freedom sounds like. And then they put an air freshener in the car, and the voiceover says, this is what freedom smells like. <laughs> Wow, it's kind of different than what we're talking about here. Um, <laughs> but what it does is it, it, it does play on like our popular notions of what freedom is. And the popular notion might be the ability to get away from whatever you want to get away from. And, um, you know, get in your car and go. And uh, that freedom is also... Uh, Related, perhaps, to kind of masking over anything you don't like, kind of getting it all pleasant and, you know, pushing anything, any unpleasant smell aside and kind of pretending it doesn't exist. But here we, we, we actually have kind of the opposite idea. In fact, you're not escaping anywhere, right? You're here. You're, you're actually confined um, to this this place in order to see if, if you can learn and understand what freedom is in the present moment, in the now. So in Buddhism, freedom is the ability to fully inhabit your reality in this moment, rather than putting our wishes, for example, in escape and trying to get somewhere else. Though I did read somewhere once that the most common human thought is, get me out of here. And uh, I'm assuming some of you have had that thought. Um, So we're trying to understand how to be here with this wild human life, this life of 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. And um, what we're exploring is that freedom has less to do than with what is happening and more to do with how we're relating to what's happening, right? We've brought this up over and over again. And it's mindfulness that helps us learn. Mindfulness um, masters all things, is what the Buddha said. It's such a... um, beautiful and rich uh, quality of mind. And so we're going to talk about mindfulness again. And some of you who've meditated a lot, perhaps you're going, uh, again, more mindfulness talk. Come on, market better, sell more, be better, grow faster. (laughs) Let's move on. (laughs) You might think, oh, this is a little bit of a setback. But... um, 
I remember once after about 30 years of practice, I was um, practicing in Burma, and I went into my teacher and I said, you know, I think I'm finally starting to understand what mindfulness is. And she said, that's fantastic. That means you're paying attention. So we can keep deepening our understanding. And um, we're even going to go back to rain. And even rain. <laughs> As kind of our, our, um, our uh, organization, organization of the talk of mindfulness. But mostly we're going to be talking about the last one, non-identification. Because that one's come up for a lot of people. So as you know, the four, well, the four have different words, but might be something like um, recognize, accept, investigate, and non-identification. So some versions that some of you have heard might have changed the last one to um, nurture. But in the original formation that my teacher, Michelle McDonald, um, uh, put together, it, it's non-identification. And... All of us actually believe that's the most important of the four, and it's the most Buddhist of the four. Um, so it really takes us into the core of the Buddhist teachings, so we're going to get there pretty quick. We're just going to cruise through the first three and then focus on that one. And I like to focus and want to focus on non-identification because um, I think it's the one that's most misunderstood so people, I have a lot of questions. So this morning when Greg was talking about a rain, um, he started with relaxation, and I really appreciated that, the R for relaxation. Relaxation is, is the means and the end. Sometimes I think of the path of practice as deeper and deeper relaxation. You can kind of feel how it's related to letting go. Just a deeper and deeper um, settling into relaxation. So, um, also we see that on the path, that through relaxation we um, see things more clearly and the mind um, collects itself more easily. We think of like concentration as um, something that we effort to achieve, but actually it comes out of relaxation. There is something you do, you come back to your anchor, right? But, but the relaxation is what allows everything to settle and collect. So, so important. Then, traditionally, this R in RAIN has been recognition. And this morning also, Greg mentioned uh, mental noting, that soft whispered word of what's happening. And sometimes uh, mental noting can be really helpful for recognition because it, we, we name what is um, happening in the moment, hearing, oh, smelling, listening, um, hearing, uh, especially helpful with um, emotions. Oh, fear, loneliness, excitement. 
So it's just a soft whispered word, right? And uh, we were talking one group today that if it seems like it's so much in the way, we can uh, turn down the volume and, and we want to have most of our energy to go into the connection with what's happening. So then A, there is, I liked this spectrum that Greg was talking about, first acknowledging, and then maybe that moves into allowing, and maybe that moves into acceptance. So you can almost see that there's this range, right, with the A. It's a range of willingness. We start out with, okay, (laughs) I know you're there. (laughs) And then eventually like, oh, okay, Mm, I can be with this. I can allow it. I accept it as, as the truth of the moment. So that's what the acceptance is pointing to, that this is the truth of the moment. It's not pointing to condoning whatever's happening or encouraging or anything. It's just like, oh. Yeah, this is here. And we, I, we move along this spectrum um, by softening, softening into what's happening, receiving what's happening. I, for um, investigate or interest, Just pointing out once again, I think we've done this a number of times, but pointing out that investigation isn't um, so much a a kind of cognitive investigation, but more a a moment-by-moment intimacy, which is another word that Greg used this morning and we've used, and moment-to-moment intimacy with what's happening. And to um, see more, we're more interested, for example, in process than content. So, we're, so for example, if we're with an emotion, we're not so interested in the story. We're interested in how does an emotion unfold? What is the nature of emotion? How do we become entangled? How do we become free? And again, you can hear that, those words, what and how, right? And not so much why. Why am I feeling this emotion? Which you can feel has a whole different um, energy to it. It's a cognitive energy, which sometimes is useful. There, there's a place for that question. But it's not the full use of, um, of our meditation practice. The full use of our meditation practice is more interested in process, how it unfolds. Noticing change, big part of process, noticing how um, things change. Basically noticing how things change so, so we can see how we relate to that. How do we relate to change? That's a big part of our investigation is how do we relate to change? It's an underlying truth of life. It seems important to understand how we're relating to it. I, um, I used to teach a, a meditation group at a women's college uh, nearby, and um, 
one time I asked the young women, I said, you know, Buddhism talks about change a lot. Like, why is it important? And one of the students said, well, because that's basically the way things are, and if you have issues with this, you need to deal with them. (laughs) And I just love that, because I think that's what meditation is. It's dealing with our issues with change. And so that's why we, we point towards seeing change very intimately and closely so we can see what our issues are and deal with them. So these first three are all about moving closer to our experience. They all have this kind of um, intimate healing quality to them. They have a sense of really um, owning our experience, integrating our experience, being with, meeting it, inhabiting our full humanity. The risk with these first three however, is that we start to become identified with experience. We start to take it personally as our own, as who we are. And that's why we need the fourth one of non-identification to cut this tendency to, I call it over-own experience. There's a way it's important to own experience in order to take care of ourselves. But when we overown it, when we identify with it, that's um, where the whole ball of wax, <laughs> the whole um, creation of, of self and suffering comes from. Before I move on, I just want to make sure the sound's all right. Last night I know it's a little up. Go up a little bit? All right. No, it's perfect. Okay. I just want to make sure last night I know it was a little soft at times. So what is this non-identification? Or um, Greg also said nature, and we could also say not-self. Non-identification is seeing the impersonal nature of all arising phenomena. The first three feel personal. This one balances it out. Understanding that everything that arises is borrowed and will return to nature. And this non-identification helps us to access um, spaciousness in the heart and mind, a certain kind of lightness. We're not so attached to what arises and we're not so absorbed in drama around what arises. I think of non-identification as um, non-drama. Identification is drama. But to talk about identification, we really are non-identification. We have to talk about identification because non-identification isn't something we do. It's something we don't do. So you can't do something you don't do. (laughs) But what we can do is explore identification to understand it very deeply. 
and then explore what helps us to relax, identification, relax, um, the grasping, the attachment, the identifying, the over-owning, and then increasingly understand what non-identification is. So let's talk a little bit about what identification is. What do we mean? How does that look? So we have this being called me, uh, which is really this uh, arising and passing away of six sense experiences, the six sense experiences, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, consciousness. And these experiences arise and pass away due to causes and conditions coming together in a certain way, and then they pass when causes and conditions change. What we tend to do when these experiences arise is we tend to to glom, I call it glom, onto them and uh, get attached in the hopes that we can um, my favorite story just disappeared on me, I think. <laughs> we, we tend to, um, to glom onto them, get attached to them in the hopes that we can isolate these events and then we can control them. So what happens when we identify is we close down and limit the heart and mind through our attempts to manage all of our sense contact. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, I recently read, said, the present moment is by definition an ongoing construction site. (laughs) I found that really interesting because this is what we're doing. It's a construction site, so we're we're, we're glomming on to whatever's happening, and then we start to construct, right, this whole reality out of that. Starts with identifying and then reacting, managing, controlling, restlessness. And so we feel identification. In fact, that's one of the ways towards non-identification is to feel, to understand the feeling of identification and the feeling of non-identification. So the feeling of identification is contraction, tension, kind of a limiting of the space of our heart and mind. Drama, entanglement, Suffering. We try to make things permanent. Glom on, make them permanent so we can figure out what to do with them. If it's pleasant, make them stay. If it's unpleasant, get rid of it. There's some obvious survival benefits to this. So it is deeply conditioned. It's helpful in that way. Like I said, we have to own our experience to a certain extent. But if it's the only way we relate to our experience, then we're, we're trapped. We're trapped in rounds of, of um, suffering. Non-identification is making space around experience 
it's there. It's real in that sense, but, but we don't make it more real. We don't solidify it. We don't own it as who and what we are. There's this great story, which I'd hope to read to you, but I'm just going to paraphrase it because somehow it got lost in transit, um, of Ajahn Chah. This is one of my favorite Dharma stories ever. So Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai forest master, um, earlier in his practice, he was practicing out in the jungle um, near a village, and uh, the tradition was that the villagers would support these monks to... um, practice and then they would kind of do some teaching anyway one time late at night he was um, trying to meditate and they were having this big festival down in town and um, as was common in those days and still is I can attest when there are festivals in in um, Burma and Thailand for example they want to make sure that everybody can enjoy what's going on. So there's these big loudspeakers and, and everybody in the village can hear what's going on. And there's, they pretty much go on most of the night. Um, music and impromptu sermons and um, all kinds of things. So he's trying to meditate and he's getting really bothered by this sound. He's like, what are they doing down there? You know, they're partying up. They know I'm up here meditating. Why are they, you know, boozing it? They're probably not following the five precepts and um, uh, on and on, right? Um, He was identifying with that sound. That's an example of identifying and, and and the drama, right? And then he had this moment realization. He was like, oh, the sound is just doing what sound does. If I don't go out to bother the sound, it won't come back to bother me. Just sound. And it, that was like one of the most important insights he had in his, in his uh, practice. Non-identification. So simple, right? And so much freedom. So much space, lightness. It's just sound. Um, another example, we're sitting here minding our own business and then we get angry, anger arises, right? And then we, and then we, um, first of all, we might believe the angry stories. We create this whole, um, story about the person we're angry with and what kind of person they are. Um, narrows, right? Narrows and limits our vision, because we forget that we actually love this person, <laughs> but no, they're a jerk. And, um, and then we start thinking, oh, I'm a bad person. I shouldn't be angry. I'm supposed to be chilling here in meditation and having a blissful time, and here I am furious. And what's wrong with me? And right? You see the drama. It all comes because we identified with anger. And so... Non-identification is that anger is a set of thoughts, feeling in the body, arising because of some conditions came together. It's not who we are. And yet, it is true that it, that it has some reality right in us and that it, it is our responsibility to figure out what we're going to do with it. 
so that we don't, you know, go home and yell at this person. Um, I like the way Tignat Han says it. He says, there's a screaming baby in the room, and it's your baby. It's yours to deal with. <laughs> so when anger arises, there's a screaming baby, right? And, and so we do, we do have to deal with it. Non-identification doesn't mean we're like, oh. <laughs> um, but yet we don't carry it to all these extra steps of drama that cause suffering. And that create the self, too, right? You can hear the creation of myself in the whole um, scenario that I gave. All that seriousness and drama is extra. It's the glomming. Or some pain arises. Let's say um, a pain in the shoulder arises. We glom onto it. We have to fix it. It's, oh, it's probably going to get worse. I think I might become a hunchback. Um, and it's never going to go away, right? So we create this whole um, scenario. We've identified with that pain. In truth, what it is is sensations arising and passing away. We move close to it. We see that, oh, it's stinging, burning, stabbing, waxing, waning, came together maybe because of the way we're sitting, some causes and conditions, and... It's not who we are. It's not our fault. And again, this isn't to wipe out the truth and the fact that it feels personal and that if we are consistently having pain in our shoulder, we might need to look at how we're sitting or find it takes some response. It's not um, obliterating that level of responsibility and relationship to what's happening. We do have to own our experience to the extent um, necessary for taking care of ourselves and taking care of what arises. However, this taking care is um, joined with the understanding of the impersonality of it all. Identifying, we try to make things permanent, manageable, and personal. When in truth, life is impermanent, uncontrollable, and impersonal. Another example. Oh, time flies. In my... um, one time in my, my meditative career, um, I was on retreat, and I found myself judging everybody. Um, it was pretty, felt very relentless. So, you know, yogis w- would walk by. Anytime I wasn't in the hall, you know, yogis would walk time. And be like, oh, look at, look at how they walk. They're making so much noise. Don't they know that, you, you know, you should walk quieter or look how much food they're taking you shouldn't be eating that much on retreat and look at how she's dressed she thinks she's so pretty and you know it went on (laughs) it went on and on right and uh, I I was getting somewhat frustrated with this (laughs) and so I went into my um, 
my interview with my teacher happened to be uh, Joseph Goldstein. I went into an interview with him, and uh, you know, so I kind of complained for a while. Oh, I'm judging everybody. I'm such a bad person. Like, oh, because I was convinced, obviously, that I was a bad person because I was having all these thoughts. And he listened for a while very kindly, and then um, he says, "It's just a thought." And I was like. I mean, this was like, you know, 38 years ago or 35 years ago, and it was one of those big moments in my meditation because I was like, oh, I had been identifying with those thoughts. So I was believing them. That person really was taking too much food. And um, I really was convinced I was a bad person. But then it just, everything shifted. It's like, oh, it's a judging thought. Okay. No problem. If I don't believe it, there isn't a problem. It doesn't mean that sometimes we have discernment. That's different. That's different than judgment. It was such a relief. It was, um, it taught me so much about identifying with thoughts and non-identification with thoughts, which is, frees us of having to believe everything that our minds Views out, and you know that there's some pretty crazy things that our minds come up with. And then we believe them, right? We're sitting here and we believe them because we identify with the thought. So there's an opportunity to just put some space around it. And, um, oh, there it is. There's that thought. There's that thought that comes back so often. And this morning when Greg was leading the instructions on thought, he was uh, helping us kind of aim towards um, non-identification, learning how to have some space and flexibility around thoughts. So the other place where we identify a lot is um, with our beliefs, right, and our opinions. And we, and we, so we have an opinion, our belief comes up, and then we're like, oh, yeah, I'm sure I'm right, and, and, we, and we get kind of uh, tight around it, right? <laughs> One time this happened to me. I was at the bottom of my driveway, and, and I looked up the driveway, and I saw that my partner's car was gone, my husband's car was gone. So I park, and I go in the house, and, and then he's standing there. I'm like, huh, you're here? I thought you were gone. Your car's not there. Where's your car? And he's like, my car's where it's always. And I had driven up the driveway and parked next to his car <laughs> without seeing it because I had already decided it wasn't there. It was such a fascinating example of like what happens when we identify with a thought. It filters what we see, right? When I was um, 22, I, I went to Nicaragua, to Nicaragua, to teach um, in the American school there. And um, I was teaching ESL. 
and it was during the Contra War and uh, the Sandinista early sun, for those of you who are my age, <laughs> the younger ones might not remember it, but it, it was a war, it was pretty crazy politically. Um, but the Sandinistas, a kind of leftist uh, um, group, had taken power, had overthrown the dictator, and our, our government was supporting the Contras. The people were trying to fight back. And, and I went down there because I was this um, kind of, I went to school in Madison, right, University of Wisconsin in Madison, so kind of a, a little lefty. And I went down there to see what was going on. I was very curious. And um, in the school, the secondary principal identified as a socialist communist, and the director, he didn't identify as CIA, but he was. I saw some paperwork <laughs> by accident. <laughs> so, so we have these two people, right, with very um, different points of view. And they would come in from, uh, you know, a weekend. Weekend would pass. The Sandinistas would do this or that. And they would come in. And the, the, the principal would be like, oh, those Sandinistas, they're so fabulous. They did this. They did that. And then the director would come in and say, those damn Sandinistas, you know, they did this, they did that. And I would watch these two people, like, have, um, they were so identified with their beliefs that they only saw what fit with their beliefs. And they didn't see um, anything else. And it was such a teaching to me. I learned a lot about relapsing my opinions, which... I, I tend to be an opinionated person. Um, we don't have to go far to see that that that, that, that happens. It's just not in Nicaragua. Um, but when we identify, it does. It really it narrows our view. We only see a certain way. So non-identification doesn't mean that we don't believe anything. We still can have beliefs. It's how we hold them. We learn to hold our beliefs with some lightness, some room for new information, for adjustments. There's space around what we believe. When I was 20, 20, I went to work in um, Oaxaca with the Quakers. I was with this international group, and at the end, we all got a little evaluation on our kind of group dynamics. And so I remember the leader, I thought he was old, but he was probably in his 30s. And, <laughs> and um, the feedback for me was, you know, you're, you're pretty opinionated. <laughs> and you're pretty attached to your opinions. And it, it was such a learning for me, right? I still remember that feedback. And um, 40 years later, I'm still opinionated, but I do believe that I'm less attached to my opinions. I'm more um, flexible, so less identification. And then non-identification in this whole area of emotions, so helpful. Um, One time I read this book called My Age of Anxiety, and um, in the book, the author uses the phrase my anxiety hundreds of times. And I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, please stop saying my anxiety. You can say the anxiety I'm experiencing. But I felt like the repeating of the word my anxiety was just encouraging identification, right? 
How about the anxiety that I'm feeling? So maybe we say my anger, my fear, my anxiety. That, that encourages identification. Can we find another way of, of relating? One time I was sitting in this hall. I remember I was sitting right over there. <laughs> it was a three-month retreat, and um, I started to feel really lonely. And so I, 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 I identified with it. I was, um, oh, I started pity myself and um, kind of a little drama about how lonely I was. And, um, and then I had this moment. It was this moment like, oh, there are people feeling lonely all over the world right now. No human gets through life without feeling lonely. And the whole experience changed, right? It went from being personal to being nature. This is a part of a human life, is to feel lonely. And the suffering went away. And there was much more lightness. Oh, dear. Let's try just a little experiment for a few moments, okay? So you can close your eyes if you want. It's a two-minute meditation. So if you can, bring to mind an emotion that you feel easily. Maybe an afflictive one is more dramatic, but it it can also be a pleasant emotion. And so bringing this emotion to mind, say, I am whatever. I am angry. I am afraid. I am joyful. Just notice how that experience feels. Now try saying, I feel angry. I feel joyful. I feel afraid. What's that like? And then try. Anger feels like this. Fear feels like this. Joy feels like this. Whichever one. How's that experience? All right, come back to here now. So perhaps you might have felt some lightening um, as we move through the progression. So I was encouraging you to, to identify with the first phrase, I am angry, I am. And then um, a little bit less identification. And then the last one, encouraging less identification. Oh, anger feels like this. 
It's an experience that arises and passes away. So that maybe you can get a little bit the sense of the, of the flavor. So non-identification is really a letting go of holding on, a letting go of um, contraction, a release. We might feel it as a relief and a release. It's um, an unbinding. And it's related to not-self because identifying with experience is the beginning of creating a self. First we identify, then we cling, then we get reactive, and then we create this whole self that is separate from the world and is going to manage it. Non-identification is not doing that, is is simple, freer, more space, more lightness. So we, we see how seriously we take things sometimes. We get, sometimes we get too serious when we meditate, too. And, you know, it is serious what we're doing here. And yet, and yet, can we learn to play with the heart and mind? That's like advanced non-identification, playing with our own hearts and minds. Ajahn Chai was reading something he wrote once. He's like, time how long you're angry. See if the, tomorrow you can improve your time. <laughs> Have a contest with your friends and see who can, you know. It's like it, the attitude is, is one of play, right? We don't have to take all the stuff that goes through this heart and mind quite as seriously as we do. Our thoughts, they're crazy. Right? It's like, ha ha, look at those thoughts. <laughs> yeah, so that's also the flavor of um, non identification, is this flavor of play. And, and what we want to be careful of is, um, Is, what, is, is just checking out what uh, non-identification is not. So it's not dissociation. And if we find that, we've, that with non-identification, like we've moved too far from experience, just check, are the other three there? Is recognition allowing an investigation there? That's the balance, right? And then the other way we can go too far is, you know, we get all mired and entangled. So is there a way that um, we can have more lightness with the contents that pass through of heart, body, mind? So we find the middle there. So as we relax identification, we let things be as, we are, as they are. We don't meddle so much 
in life. We receive life, let it be. And unhooked from seeing everything as something that has to be managed, we, we enter into more genuine relationship with the world, untroubled by our um, attempts to control. And then the tender heart responds. It's tender to be in genuine relationship with the world. Released from our personal drama, we look around a little bit. We can see the rest of the world. We can see um, maybe what needs tending to, how we can be of help. So this non-identification is really... um, the open heart and the open mind. Open heart, open mind. Dogen, that favorite uh, meditation master of mine, said, "I came to realize clearly. I came to realize clearly that the mind is not other than the mountains, rivers, the great wide earth, sun, moon, and stars." That's pretty open mind heart, right? We start to understand kind of the vastness of our own hearts and minds. St. Thomas Aquinas said, we are universe capable. We have a universe-shaped mind. That sounds good. We're universe capable. Maybe that's where we'll leave it. We're universe-capable. Meditation is about uncovering that capacity in our own heart and mind. Let's sit for just a minute. Thank you for your attention. And if you'd like to practice non-identification with the food, with eating, what happens when you taste a bite of food? Is there this simple connection with the changing taste? Or is there, oh, I like, I don't like, I want more. Is there identification with tasting? Check it out.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.